Good to see everybody. Good news. This is our last week to be cramped in this, this room, Lord willing. Next week we will be out in the, in the main part of the, the auditorium and we'll start a new series next week, Lord willing. Uh, but as always, thank you so very much for being here tonight. Let's go ahead and start with the prayer if we could. Most Holy Father, we are we're so thankful. Father, I'm thankful for the opportunity to gather together with my brothers and sisters. I'm thankful that you have united us as family in Jesus. I'm thankful, Father, for this story that has been unfolding for thousands of years and that through Jesus we have been invited into, that you have grafted us into your family tree and that we get to be heirs of the promises that you made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob because of what Jesus has done for us. And Father, we pray that every day that we live, that you will help us to understand that story better, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of everyone around us. May we love you more, and may we love each other more, and may we love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, again, thank you and good evening. I am, I'm, really, I'm really excited about wrapping this series up, but I'm really thankful for the time that we've been able to, to share. I hope that you've enjoyed this study as much as I have. Um, I'm not going to waste any time reviewing. This is the last week, so um, there's, there's the 11 points that we've gone through. I won't go through every single one of them um, as we normally do. Um, but, but just kind of, again, big picture, big picture, God chose a people, right? He chose Abraham specifically and chose Abraham's seed, Abraham's descendant. And he made this promise that through the seed of Abraham, what was going to happen? All nations were going to be blessed. And and tonight I, I kind of want us to see one of the things that I hope we see tonight is one of the reasons why the Jewish people understandably lost sight of that big picture idea of all the nations being blessed, why they, they lost sight of that and they became very afraid of and um, not necessarily angry at, but sometimes hateful towards people that were outsiders, the goyim, the Gentiles, the, the, the others, the people that weren't Jewish, the uncircumcised, why they, they kind of built a hedge around themselves and, and didn't want to have anything to do with the rest of the world. Because as, as 21st century Christians, we can read the big picture story and say, well, duh, it was always supposed to be a, this multi-ethnic, multinational family. Um, but I, I, I hope that part of the thing that you see tonight is why by the time Jesus gets here, that part of the story had been lost uh, because of the, some of the things that they went through during that 400 years uh, between the time of, of Nehemiah that we talked about last week and Jesus or that we'll talk about tonight. So that, that period of time we're calling waiting, and it's also known as the intertestamental period, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's really what I want us to talk about. But just a reminder of how we ended last week. Last week we ended with this slide that said, even the best leaders, we were specifically talking about Zerubbabel, and Ezra, and Nehemiah, even the best leaders could not change the people's stubborn hearts, remove their collective sin, or end their exile. 
In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah both referred to the people as what? Last week, remember? Slaves, right? Slaves. They said, we're slaves. We're slaves. And it's true. They were slaves under the Persian Empire. The Persian kings were ruling over them. They allowed them to go back home. They allowed them to rebuild the temple. They allowed them to rebuild the wall. They allowed them to reestablish a sort of a colony, a Persian colony back in Jerusalem of the Jewish people, but they were still under the Persian thumb. They were still ruled by the Persian, by the Persian kings and the Persian empire. Uh, so here's some important dates for us to think about. Um, 445 BC uh, is kind of where we left off last night, the third or last week, third wave of exiles return with Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. Um, then they would spend another century under the Persian kings. Um, And then in 335 BC, Alexander, that we call Alexander the Great, right? Alexander the Great becomes king. Um, He conquers Persia. Uh, He conquers um, Egypt. He conquers most of that known world um, at the time. Uh, Here's a, a map of Alexander's area, his kingdom, Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander was from Macedonia, uh, but this really begins a time of, of Hellenization. When we say Hellenization, what do we mean? Greek, right? So, so really getting people to speak the Greek language, to think with Greek philosophy, uh, to really think in a, in a Greek way. Um, the, the city of Alexandria, like Alexander, Alexandria, Egypt was established. Uh, there, a, a, a group of Jewish people, Jewish community lives in Alexandria, what comes from that Jewish community in Alexandria? Anybody know? The Septuagint, right? The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, which is what the apostles usually are quoting from when they quote from the scriptures. So it was their, their scriptures that they read, which is why the New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, so again, uh, the Greek language spreads and, and the, the world is kind of Hellenized at the time. Um, then Alexander the Great dies. 323 BC, so he had a very, very short life and very short reign. And in 323, he died. And then, um, and then his kingdom was split amongst his generals. There was a lot of fighting over his territory. Uh, but one of the, the, the generals that took over that we're going to focus on is Seleucus. And Seleucus took over in about 312 BC. One of Alexander's generals, he claimed a lot of the territory and begin the Seleucid Empire that lasted for about 250 years. So the Seleucid Empire really becomes the, one of the important empires that is going to rule over the area that we're concerned about in our studies. Then in 175, Antiochus, my whole life I always heard Antiochus, Um, But then now I'm hearing Antiochus. I'm not sure which is right. But Antiochus reigns over the Seleucid Empire in about 175 uh, BC. And this is really when Jerusalem begins to be Hellenized. Um, And so we're going to read quite a bit tonight from the book of 1 Maccabees. Um, Now, you won't find that in your scriptures. Um, this This is not something that Protestant Christians consider to be scriptures, and primary reason we don't consider it to be scriptures is the Jewish people didn't consider it to be scriptures. Uh, so that it, in the Jewish Hebrew scriptures, uh, the 
the, um, the Apocrypha is not, is not there. So, but, but interesting history nonetheless and important for what we're talking about tonight. So about 175 BC, so this is 175 years before Jesus is born. This is kind of the things, these are the things that are going on, going on under uh, Antiochus. I'm going to try to say it the right way. Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, so 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 11. Unless you have a Catholic Bible, you probably won't be able to turn over there, but it'll be on the screen. In those days, certain renegades came out from Jerusalem and misled many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. For since we separated from them, many disasters have come upon us. This proposal pleased them, and some of the people eagerly went to the king who authorized them to observe ordinances of the Gentiles. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem, according to the Gentile custom, and removed the marks of circumcision and abandoned the holy covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. Okay, so again, thinking big picture, everything we've talked about so far so they've, they've come back to Jerusalem. The Persians have been thrown off, but now it's the Greeks. And now it's just, you know, another, another group of people that are ruling over them. But what are, at least according to the author of 1 Maccabees, what are many of the Jewish people doing? Yeah, coming, becoming Greeks, becoming like the Gentiles, doing what the Gentiles do, abandoning the covenant not doing what they're supposed to be doing, removing the marks of circumcision. I'm not really sure what that means. That could mean surgically removing the marks of circumcision, or it could just mean that they're not circumcising their children and they're abandoning the practice of circumcision. That certainly becomes part of the story here in just a little bit. But they're, they're, they're doing what they did before, right? This is, this is exactly, it's exactly why we ended up in exile in the first place. And the exile, again, hasn't really ended. The, the promises that we've been waiting for haven't really come true. They've come back to Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. The, the city is there, but, but it never really reached its, the glory that we were waiting for, did it? And, and, now, and now they're compromising all over again. And now they're, they're going back to doing things the, the way of the, the people around them and, and compromising and, and living as the Gentiles live. Verse 20. After subduing Egypt, Antiochus returned in the 143rd year, that's about 169 BC. He went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, and all its utensils. He took also the table for the bread of the presence, the cups for drink offerings, the bowls, the golden <laughs> censers, the curtains, the crowns, and the gold decorations on the front of the temple. He stripped it all off. He took the silver and the gold and the costly vessels. He took also the hidden treasures that he found. Taking them all, he went into his own land. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. I mean, I'm just tired. How about you? Right? It's exhausting, isn't it? This story, I mean, it's exhausting what the people have done to themselves and the, what the Gentile people have done to them, what the Babylonians did them, the Assyrians before that, the Persians after that, now the Greeks, the Seleucids, all of these people just continually 
just destroy them. And of course, if you look at the map, if we were to go back to the map, I mean, they're right between all of these major players, between Egypt and, and, um, and uh, India is on one side and Babylon and all of these different places. And so they just, just track right through as if they're this hallway that they just keep trudging right through. And as they go through, they're like, oh, hey, these nobody people, they've got a bunch of gold and nice things. We're going to take all of that stuff. And they just keep looting them over and over and over again. And so the people, of course, are trying to figure out how do we keep from becoming everybody's doormat? How do we keep from getting stomped on by everybody that wants to stomp on us? How can we, how can we make friends with these people? And so some people are, are beginning to compromise and do what the Greeks want them to do and become Hellenized. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all, all should be one people. This is Antiochus and that all should give up their particular customs. Now, again, I mean, if you think about it from the Seleucid point of view, from Antiochus's point of view, you can see why he would say that, right? I mean, he's got all of these different groups, all these ethnic groups that he's trying to rule over. It would be much easier if everybody just spoke one language, had one religion, stopped trying to be different, Stop holding on to your own religion and your own gods and your own customs and your own languages. Stop doing all of that and come into the melting pot and we'll all just be exactly the same. And so you have to stop being unique. You have to stop being different. And so, of course, that's what he's trying to do and telling them that they should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king and many even from Israel gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary to profane Sabbaths and festivals. I've heard my whole life that when the Jewish people came back from Babylonian exile, they were done with idolatry. According to 1 Maccabees, that's not true. They still struggled with it. They, they, still, they still adopted it. Now, now, you could argue and say, well, yeah, but they're kind of being forced to. And you'd be right. They are being forced to. Antiochus is forcing them under threat of death, worship our gods. But again, this is the exact same thing that they faced in Babylonian exile, isn't it? Fall down and worship this statue or die. And, and the faithful ones said, then we'll die. Throw us in the furnace, throw us with the lions, but we will not give up our customs. We will not bow to your statues. We will be the people we're called to be. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to hang out over here and do our own thing and not care about the rest of you. We're going to seek the good of Babylon. We're going to participate. We're going to cooperate. We're going to work with you. We're going to help you. We're going to be a blessing to you. But we will not abandon our God or our customs or our law. It, that's, a, that's a very fine line to walk, isn't it? And so many people went one direction or the other. And they either withdrew and said, we're not having anything to do with those horrible people. Or, or they said, yeah, I, I can't resist. If I resist, they're going to kill me. And I'm, I'm not even going to, to be alive to wonder about this. To defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals and to leave their sons uncircumcised. 
They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, and whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. So again, I mean, this is tough, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, on the one hand, you want to say, well, don't give in. Stand strong. Be who God calls you to be. Don't, don't compromise. And on the other hand, if they say, if you circumcise your baby, we will kill you. If we catch you with a copy of the Torah, we will kill you. If you are not working on the Sabbath day, we will kill you. If we catch you celebrating these feasts and festivals, we will kill you. If you don't offer sacrifices to our gods, we will kill you. In such words, he wrote to his whole kingdom. He appointed inspectors over all the people and commanded the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice town by town. Many of the people, everyone who forsook the law, joined them and they did evil in the land. They drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. Okay, so you have people that are hiding and you have people that are compromising and and going along with what they're being told. Again, because they're being told if they don't do it, they're going to die. Now on the 15th day of Chislev, In the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. Now, I mean, lots of people have tried this kind of thing. Conquerors have come in and said, okay, we're going to convert these people to our way of life by destroying their way of life, destroying their customs. We're going to stomp them out. We're going to stomp on their holy books. We're going to burn their temples. We're going to... A lot of people have tried that. Very rarely works very well, does it? I'm not sure, you know, the practicality of that kind of a strategy. But again, imagine being in this situation. There's people that are hiding. There's people that are, are giving in and just going along with it because it's easier, to, it's easier to just do what they want and not die. And then there's other people that are just getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And they hate these people. And you can imagine, can't you? I mean, I don't know that I can really imagine, but I can try. Because you have had hundreds of years now hundreds of years, centuries, not only since Assyria carried off the northern kingdom and then Babylon carried off the southern kingdom, but then Persia took over and then your great, great, great grandparents came back to Jerusalem. You rebuilt it. You thought, this is, this is it. Yay, we're back home. And then for centuries, you just keep getting stomped on by whoever the big kid in town is now. And they're telling you, if you don't go along with this, then you're going to die. And many of your neighbors and your brothers and sisters and your aunts and your uncles are doing exactly what they're being told to. So you're mad at the Greeks and you're mad at your uncle and you're mad at all the entire situation. Keep reading verse 58. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised. They put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them. 
and they hung the infants from their mother's necks. right. There was always that few. There was always that remnant. But many in Israel, here's exactly what Willie's talking about, but many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant, and they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. And this is true in every single generation. And I hope that we've seen that as we've gone through in every single generation. There were people, there were people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. There were people like Joseph that were rescued and that these great, these great heroic moments happened. They did the right thing and God rescued them. And there were thousands of people who did the right thing and they died. But Jesus is going to rescue them. They died believing that. Not knowing that his name would be Jesus, but knowing that Yahweh's Messiah, Yahweh would anoint one that was going to rescue them. That God, somehow, God would keep his promises. This goes back exactly to the faith of Abraham, doesn't it? Because this is what Abraham did. Abraham said, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how I can sacrifice my son and still have my son be the promised heir that's going to do all of these things. I don't know how both of those things can happen. But if God said it, it's going to happen. I don't know how, but it's going to happen. God may bring him back from the dead. That's what Abraham supposed. He's going to come back from the dead. And I have to believe that so many of these people, generation after generation, they believe God will raise me from the dead. And then the next generation, their grandchildren and great-grandchildren who knew my grandfather, he didn't give in when Antiochus told him that he had to sacrifice to their gods. He didn't give in when... <laughs> when Antiochus said that he couldn't circumcise my father. He didn't give in when they said he couldn't keep the Sabbath. He did what he was supposed to do and they killed him for it. The Messiah is going to come and the Messiah is going to raise him from the dead. That there was this faith, this belief that in spite of everything, in spite of everything, and again, I get so caught up in my own little world and feeling sorry for myself because I've had a couple bad days or something. These people had had a couple bad centuries, centuries, where it had been nothing but horrible. And this remnant of people still believed somehow, somehow, all of these amazing promises that God's anointed king is going to rule the world, that all the nations of the world will be blessed through the Messiah, that all the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem and learn from God. And somehow his name, the name of our God, Yahweh, is going to fill the entire earth. Somehow, somehow all of these blessings and truths and promises are going to come true. I don't know how, but somehow it's going to happen. But eventually... There was a priest named Mattathias or Matthias Hasmon. It's where we get Hasmonean, the Hasmonean dynasty. We'll talk about that in a second. But Matthias or Mattathias was tired of it. As you can imagine, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of, I'm tired of the compromising. I'm tired of the persecution. I'm tired of all of it. Chapter 2 of 1 Maccabees says, 
When he had finished speaking, Mattathias gave the speech, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice on the altar in Modin, according to the king's command. When Mattathias saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and killed him on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice and he tore down the altar. So Matthias's son, Judah or Judas, becomes uh, Judah the Hammer or Judah Maccabee, which is where 1st, 2nd Maccabees is named after. And so this Hasmonean dynasty is born from Matthias's family. And not only do they say, we're done. We're done with the Seleucids. We're done with Antiochus. We're done being told we can't keep the Sabbath. We're done being told we can't circumcise our children. We're done, we're done being walked all over. We're done being persecuted. And they started fighting back. And they started killing the Greeks. They started killing the Seleucids. But not only did they start killing the Greeks, of course, just like Matthias does here, they started killing their Jewish brothers and sisters who had become Hellenized. And maybe, again, this kind of a side note, but think forward, think forward to uh, right after Pentecost when you have this, this disagreement, the first disagreement in the church. You remember what it was? Well, who was being overlooked? The Greek, the Greek widows, right? This is why. This has gone back hundreds of years. Because the, 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 the Jewish people that had kept their Hebrew language and had kept their Hebrew customs resented the Jewish cousins who had Hellenized and spoke Greek and wore Greek clothes and kind of acted Greek. Even if they still were Jewish in some respect, they resented them. And so this sparks this period of time where not only are they fighting back and killing the Seleucids, the Greeks, they're also killing the Jewish people who have compromised and have Hellenized. But again, I can't, I, I mean, again, I, I understand their anger. I understand their zeal and their passion, why they would think this is what needed to happen. But I can also understand why the, the Jewish people Hellenized and why they said, I, I, I have to... I have to do whatever I can to keep my family alive. It was a very difficult time, wasn't it? And then there were those. There were those. In fact, right before, right, right after this story, there was a group of people that wouldn't fight on the Sabbath day. They're like, we're going to fight, but we're not going to fight on the Sabbath because that would be breaking the law. And they were slaughtered. And so the Maccabees said, okay, we're going to fight even on the Sabbath. So from the very beginning, they themselves begin to compromise the law because they say, well, we, we have to compromise the law in order to fight for our right to maintain the law. But it doesn't take very long and they start to, uh, again, become as corrupt and as worldly as the people that they were fighting against. But they do overthrow the Greeks out of Jerusalem. They push them out of Jerusalem. They retake the temple. They, they rededicate the temple. They cleanse the temple from its defilement. They rededicate it to God. That holiday is still celebrated today, which is Hanukkah, right? So Hanukkah is the celebration of the rededication of the temple. But it's interesting. I've done some reading this week even on not only the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah, but also their 
the fact that a lot of the Jewish people for the last 2,000 years really haven't made much of a big deal of this story of the Maccabees because it's, it's kind of a bittersweet story. On the one hand, yay, we got the temple back, but they did as many brutal things and eventually the Hasmonean dynasty becomes just as corrupt and as worldly as the people they were fighting against. And so this story has kind of been downplayed over the years. And again, this isn't even part of the Jewish scriptures, but it is an interesting part of history of what's going on at this time. And it helps us to kind of understand when Jesus comes on the scene, why things have developed the way that they have. So they continue to fight against the Greeks because again, they're just this small band of guerrilla warriors. Um, they're, they're tough, they're, they're mighty, they're, they're valiant, uh, they're fighting for their homeland, uh, but they don't really stand much uh, chance against this huge Greek empire, the Seleucid Empire. But they found some friends, some up-and-coming people that they just had started hearing stories about, and they were like, hmm, these people... These could be good allies. These people could really help us against our fight against the Greeks. They'll help us to stop and turn back this Hellenization tide. Anybody know who they were? I see some smiles. The Rome, the Romans, yeah, the Romans. Look at chapter 8. Now Judas heard of the fame of the Romans, that they were very strong and were well disposed toward all who made an alliance with them that they pledged friendship to those who came to them and that they were very strong. He had been told of their wars and of the brave deeds that they were doing among the Gauls, how they had defeated them and forced them to pay tribute and what they had done in the land of Spain to get control of the silver and the gold mines there and how they had gained control of the whole region by their planning and patience, even though the place was far distant from them. They, had subdued, they also subdued the kings who came against them from the ends of the earth until they crushed them and inflicted great disaster on them. The rest paid tribute every year. So they make an alliance with Rome. Literally, they become friends with the world. So whatever you think about their, their revolution against the Seleucids, whatever you think of them killing their Jewish brothers and sisters who had compromised and had sinned by going along with the Greeks, now they've made a partnership with Rome. And it's going to take a hundred years, but eventually the door that they open to the Romans will lead to them being controlled by the Romans because eventually the Hasmonean dynasty, the descendants of Matthias, they will be kicked out and the Herodians will take their place. So Rome will uh, install the Herods in their place. So this becomes exactly the situation that Jesus finds, right? The, the Herods are ruling in Israel. They're sort of the puppets of the Roman Empire. Again, the Romans were brought into Israel by the Hasmonean dynasty, by the Maccabees, because they wanted to get rid of the Greeks. And so you have several different groups and you probably know most of these groups, but you have several different groups that kind of developed during this period of time. And, and I hope already you can kind of see why these groups developed. One of them is the Pharisees, right? So the Pharisees are one group of people and the Pharisees are anti-Hellenist, anti-Hellenist, none of, none of this Greek corruption. This Greek corruption is, is how we got in this situation in the first place. 
None of this, none of this doing things the Gentile way. We're going to follow the law. We're going to follow all of the, all of the, uh, the rules. In fact, we're going to even make more rules to make sure we don't break those rules. And then we're going to make a few more rules on top of those rules to make sure we don't break those rules. We're going to make sure that we remain personally pure. And we're going to make sure that we're not defiled. And yes, there may be defilement all around us, but we're going to do everything we can to keep ourselves pure. In fact, the word Pharisee means separate, the separate ones. They were separatists, literally. They wanted to remain separate from other people. We're not going to eat anything that maybe a, a Gentile has touched. And not only do we not like Gentiles or Greeks, if you're a Pharisee, you also don't like Hellenized Jews. You don't like Jewish people that are, have adopted Gentile customs. And again, yes, the Pharisees are the bad guys when we read the gospel account, but you can kind of understand where they're coming from, can't you? And why... They, they look at their history and their story and why they're frustrated with the, the compromise. And there again, again, you can see something of, of Ezra in the Pharisees that like if we just, if we just follow the law, if we just follow the law, then we'll, we'll be able to get rid of this, this dark cloud of sin and shame that's sitting over Israel and we'll be able to push this dark cloud away and the presence of God will come back and, and everything will be wonderful and, and the, the age of the Messiah will come if we can just keep the law and keep ourselves pure. And so they have this, this deep desire, but again, part of it is that once you, once you get into that mode of sort of telling people what to do and controlling people, and people look at you and say, man, you're the best. You're the best. We've been talking about comparison. You're the best. You, you are very righteous. You're more righteous than they are. We get puffed up with pride. We get puffed up with power. And, and, and then it becomes about what people think of us and the names they call us and the, the glory they give us. So that's one group of people that, that have quite a bit of uh, influence in Israel. Another group of people are the Sadducees, who are very different than the Pharisees. The Sadducees are sort of the wealthy ruling class. And, and these, these people are really partnered up with and allied with the Herodians. So the Herodians have, again, they, they are partnered with the Romans. And so the Herodians have given the Sadducees a lot of power, especially over the temple. And so they have a lot of power over the priesthood and the temple. The Sadducees, you probably know, they, they don't accept the, the oral traditions. They don't accept the prophets or the writings. The only thing that they accept as scripture is the Torah. That's it. Just the Torah, the law, the law of Moses, Matthew, or I'm sorry, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. So that's the only part of the, of the Hebrew scriptures that, that they accept. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in any of that stuff. It, to them, it's more about power. It's more about the, the politics of it all. And again, and, and I hope you can see this too. When we, when we read the gospel accounts and we say, that Jesus is establishing a religion or we, we try to think in terms of religion and not politics. For them, that distinction doesn't exist, does it? It's never existed at this time. No, nobody's ever like made that sort of distinction. And so when they think of the Messiah, they're not just thinking in religious categories, they're thinking in political categories too. So 
their thinking, not, not the Sadducees so much, but the Pharisees for sure are thinking Messiah, when the Messiah comes, he's going to get rid of all of this Hellenization, all this, this Gentile influence. He's going to purify everything. The, the Messiah is going to be the, the purest of the pure, right? I mean, this, he's going to make everything pure and he's going to get rid of the Romans. He's going to get rid of the Greeks and he's going to, he's going to make this place everything that it was supposed to be. So when they're thinking in terms of what is the Messiah going to do or even what salvation means. Again, when we think of salvation, we, we just think in terms of personal salvation from sin. But they're thinking, they're thinking our people, the rescue of our people, the redemption of our people, the, the keeping of God's promises to us. And they all are sort of going about it in very, very different ways. And whether even that's on their radar or whether or not they even really trust that God is the one who's going to bring this about. Because it's really easy, isn't it? For us to think, if anybody's going to save us, it's going to be us. It's up to us to do this. Certainly what the Maccabees were thinking, if we're, if we're going to be saved, we've got to take matters in our, our own hands. We've got to do this. So the Pharisees think in order for us to be saved, we've got to keep ourselves pure. We've got to keep the law. We need rules on rules on rules. And if you don't keep the rules, you're out. We will shame you. We will kick you out. You collect taxes for the Romans. You're out. I don't want to look at you. I never want to see you again. I don't want to speak your name again. If you prostitute yourself, if you compromise yourself, you're out. We don't want to have anything to do with you. If you're a Sadducee, you're thinking politically. You're thinking about alliances. You're thinking about power, right? And again, it's very much a matter of what can I do for our people? Then, you, of course, you have the Essenes who look at the whole mess and are like, y'all are all a mess. Like, we're done with all of it. We're not, why would we go to the temple? The temple's full of Sadducees. And the Sadducees are allied with the Romans and the Herodians. This, this whole thing is corrupt. You guys are all a mess. We're out. We don't want to have anything to do with any of you. So it's kind of, wouldn't put it in terms of monastic, but when we think of like Christian monastics or monks, that's kind of what the Essenes are. They just kind of withdraw into the desert or, or into a, their own community. They live in a commune. They share everything. And they're like, we're done with the rest of this. So again, as we said, that tightrope of being in the world, but not of the world, of participating and cooperating and helping and blessing without becoming just like everyone else, the Essenes took the other direction. They didn't compromise, but they went the other direction. And they're like, we're just, gonna, we're just gonna live on our own and we don't wanna have anything to do with any of the rest of this mess because it's all, it's all corrupt, it's all defiled. And then you have the zealots. We might even put this one kind of in parentheses because it's not necessarily like, all of them were just in one big club or group, but you had groups of people in the first century who were nationalists, who wanted a free and independent nation for the Jewish people, and they were tired of it. And again, again, I can look at every single one of these and I can understand where they're coming from. And the zealots were like, we need to get a sword, we need to get our spears, and we need to fight 
just like the Maccabees did, just like Phineas did in the book of Numbers. We need to take back this land. We need to kill the Romans. We need to overthrow them. If there's a Messiah coming, he can join us, but we're going to start right now and we're going to kill these Romans and we're going to take back our land. And of course, they did not want to hear what Jesus had to say, did they? Turn the other cheek. Somebody forces you to go a mile, you go with them too. Love your enemies. They said, absolutely not. And they provoked the Romans, and the Romans eventually destroyed Jerusalem again, wiped it off the map. This time, the temple would never be rebuilt. The zealots provoked that because they thought, we can take on Rome, and we can fight them back. And when God reveals the Messiah, when God sends his only begotten son, his anointed king, through whom all of the promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and all of these prophets, when he sends his son to be king, he doesn't come to the Pharisees, he doesn't come to the Sadducees, he doesn't come to the Essenes, and he doesn't come to the Zealots. He comes to the remnant, poor nobodies, Shepherds out in a field, a young Jewish woman. Here's what Mary prayed. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is why when Jesus comes and he announces the kingdom of God, he says crazy things. Like, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek, for you will inherit the earth. He, he's saying all of, all of those people that, that were trampled on because they refused, they refused to do things like the Greeks, they refused to do things like the Romans, they refused to do things like the Zealots, they refused to be like the Maccabees, they refused to be like any of them. They just said, we're just waiting for God and we're just going to keep his word and we're just going to be faithful. And if you're going to kill us, then kill us. Jesus says, congratulations, your waiting is being rewarded. Congratulations. The kingdom of God belongs to you. Congratulations, you are going to see God's face. Mary prays, this son that you're giving to me is going to bring down the proud and bring up the humble. And there were others. Luke chapter two, I've been thinking about Simeon and Anna since the beginning of this class. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
And he came in the spirit to the temple. And when his parents, Jesus' parents, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon was one of those people of the remnant who didn't lose sight of the big picture. The big picture of personal righteousness, personal justice, personal purity, but also collective, this collective, the consolation of Israel, the salvation of Israel, but not just Israel, the Gentiles, the nations, the multi-ethnic family that God is putting together, all of the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting with prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The Messiah had come to rescue his people and not just his people, Israel, but his people of all of the flocks, his sheep from all of the flocks, his sheep from all of the nations, all of the tribes, all of the languages, the salvation of the Lord has arrived. And now as those who continue to wait, we wait, but now with an even bigger fulfillment of the picture, don't we? We find ourselves just like Simeon, just like Anna, just like Mary. We're waiting. We're waiting for the Messiah again, but now we're waiting having, having, having seen the big picture. Now we know exactly who the Messiah is. Now our waiting is so much easier because the resurrection of the dead has already begun in Jesus. He has already begun to rescue the faithful because Jesus is the first fruits of that resurrection. Now we have proof We have proof that he really is going to raise all of the dead. So be faithful unto death and he will give you the crown of life. Wait on the Lord. Be patient and wait on the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we find ourselves once again waiting. We've been waiting for 2,000 years and we will wait another 2,000 years. We will wait as long as it takes. Father, we will wait in faith We will wait in hope. We will wait trusting you that someday your son Jesus will come and make all things new. Father, we long for that day. We pray that that day comes quickly, but we know, Father, that you wait and that your waiting is your patience because you want all to be saved and you want many more to come to a knowledge of your salvation and to repent of their sins and to be part of your family and we pray that we can be part of sharing that message with the people around us that we can be salt and light in the world father we pray that you give us patience steadfastness perseverance that you'll fill us with hope and joy and love father thank you for jesus thank you for opening our eyes to the story and making us a part of your family we pray these things in jesus name amen